But you open your Bibles with me, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter number 23, we are continuing in a series that we are rapidly coming to the conclusion of. We're walking in the story of Jesus verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is by far the most synoptic gospel, meaning the most biographical gospel of Jesus. It starts at the very beginning with his birth, which we started two Christmases ago in Luke 1 and 2. And it goes all the way through his life and ministry, his teaching, his miracles, uh, the, the way of the kingdom that he tries to introduce to the world, and that it finds its conclusion in chapters 23 and chapter 24 in the crucifixion and what we know next week we'll see as the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but Luke chapter 23, we're going to conclude the story of the resurrection this morning and hopefully be able to find some purpose and meaning in it. And if you got your Bibles there, we'll start reading in verse number 44, okay? Luke chapter 23, verse 44. I know we came to see kids. I'll be brief, okay? So Luke chapter 23, verse 44. So that's, that's, if you've ever been to church, that's every preacher's famous last words. So you almost don't want to hear that. It almost usually goes the opposite way, but uh, I will do my best to respect the time we have this morning. Verse 44, the Bible says, and it was about the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. And behold, there was a man named Joseph who was a counselor, and he was a good man and a just man. The same had not consented to the counsel indeed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus and took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man was before laid. And that day was the preparation when the Sabbath was drawing near. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So again, if you're new with us this morning, been going through the Gospel of Luke, I do believe we're in week 79 of this study the past couple of years and eagerly anticipating what we know is the best news. I love Luke chapter 24. Uh, We get the story of the resurrection of Jesus. We get the narrative of Jesus teaching about who he is to uh, his followers. We see him commissioning his disciples. But before we get to the great news of Easter Sunday morning, we have to go through the difficult news of what happened on Good Friday, the the sorrowful news of what happened with Jesus on the cross. And uh, this morning, we'll look at this text and um, I don't know if you ever heard of the name Etta Lindemann. Etta Lindemann was a German scholar. She studied largely religion and New Testament, but she wasn't a believer in Jesus. She was purely doing it out of historical and uh, intellectual journey. And she would have been labeled today, if she would have still alive, as an extremely liberal scholar of the New Testament. Uh, that's to say she didn't take any of the statements that took place in the gospel really literally. She believed them far more figuratively. Uh, she was a part of what was called German higher criticism in the early 19th century. And um, what happened to her, she wrote all these bo- books, and you can even still go online and still buy her books of what she wrote opposing uh, biblical theology, of opposing the truth of who Jesus is. But a, a crazy thing happened to her. 
when she was in her older years, in her 70s, she actually got saved, and she was converted, and um, that changes everything. That changes everyone, even unbelieving New Testament scholars. Before then, she admits she was, by her own admission, bitter, angry, enslaved to uh, all these kinds of various vices, but when the Lord saved her, she would later say that at that point, God led me to vibrant Christians, she wrote, who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. She said, I listened to their testimonies as they reported what God had done in their lives. And finally, God himself spoke to my heart by means of a Christian brother's words. And by God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. She said, my destructive addictions were replaced by a hunger and thirst for the word and fellowship with other believers. I was able to recognize the sin of my heart more clearly rather than making excuses for it, which was my previous habit. After about a month after entrusting my life to Jesus, God convinced me that his promises are a reality. I became aware, she said, of what folly it is given, what, given what God is doing today to maintain that the miracles of Scripture never took place. She said, suddenly it was clear to me that my previous teaching was a case of the blind leading the blind. I repented for the way I had misled my students. And by God's grace, she says, I experienced Jesus as the one whose name is above all names. I was permitted to realize that Jesus is God's son, born of a virgin. He is the Messiah and the son of man. Such titles, she said, were not merely conferred on him as a result of human deliberation. I recognized first mentally, but then in a vital experiential way that the Holy Scripture is inspired. She said, I have clear knowledge that my former teaching was perverse and it was sinful. At the same time, I'm happy and thankful because that sin is forgiven, because Jesus bore it on the cross. And then she said, I regard everything that I taught and wrote before I entrusted my life to Jesus as refuse. And I wish you to use this opportunity to mention that I've pitched my two books that she wrote, along with my contributions to journals and anthologies, and etc., in the trash can. And I ask you sincerely to do the same thing with any of them that you have on your bookshelf. If I want to summarize her, her paragraph, it would be this. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. At the end of Luke chapter 23, we see some people who admit at that moment they got it wrong. One of them is a centurion who declares, truly, this man that we just crucified was innocent. Mark adds to this testimony in his gospel, saying that the centurion testifies that truly this was the Son of God. We read of those who go home from the crucifixion, beating their chests as a sign of mourning, that they have come to a different conclusion about the one they had just seen crucified. The question I want to put before us this morning is what do we see when we look at the cross? What do we see when we look at Jesus? There's a big emphasis, I don't know if you noticed it as we read through our text this morning, on seeing, on beholding, multiple different times. Verse 47, the centurion saw. Verse 48, the crowd that was assembled saw. The women, verse 52, saw what was taking place. Last Sunday, we looked at some who looked on Jesus at the cross, and they mocked him. The religious elite, the soldiers, the, the thieves on either side of Jesus. But then we saw the one thief who had a change of heart. And experientially, 
saw what Jesus was going through, saw the words that Jesus was saying, and he came to faith in Christ, didn't he? He said, you know, today, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want to do a quick review where we're at in the storyline. There's a, there's a trial of Jesus. It's a mock trial. It's a sham trial that Jesus goes through. They try and pin a bunch of stuff on Jesus. Ultimately, it doesn't work. The Roman ruler, Pilate, says, I find no fault in him. There's no problem in this guy that you've brought to me. So they kind of shift and they change their uh, approach and go from, hey, let's try and pin something on him to uh, jury by crowd, right? Let's all get, let's get the crowd all worked up. Let's get everybody screaming. Let's chant crucify. And as a result, the ruler Pilate is willing to give Jesus over into their hands. At about nine in the morning, they crucified Jesus. We see that in the sixth hour. Um, Around noon, the sun failed to shine. Around 3 p.m., it says that Jesus gives up the ghost. So all of this takes place in about a six-hour period. The mission of Jesus, we've been studying for the past two years, the 30 or so year-long life of Jesus is culminated in these last six hours. The mission is accomplished. Jesus had taken this path that many criminals had taken before him, but he was so brutally tortured that the the flogging of Jesus made it so he couldn't carry his own cross. He's this carpenter. Sometimes you get a picture of Jesus, and you see the pictures painted in churches, and he looks kind of weak, and he looks, um, you know, I, I don't know, soft. This is a, this is a blue-collar carpenter is who Jesus was. He worked with his hands strong, okay, had this uh, understanding of what it meant to put in physical labor, yet he had been so physically beaten that he wasn't able to carry the cross beam. A North African man named Simon of Cyrene carries the cross for Jesus. Jesus gives a prophecy to the women that are following him about the destruction that's to come, and then he goes to the cross ultimately to take his last breath. In the text before us today, we see that Jesus dies peacefully in trust and confidence. I want to focus in on that phrase, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, there are a lot of crucifixions that took place during this day. Jesus probably would have witnessed at some point other crucifixions taking place. Imagine the the mental space Jesus would have been in is watching other people crucified, realizing that that would be ultimately his fate, that he would suffer. The Romans got this idea of crucifixion from the Phoenicians. If you're a history nerd, okay, uh, the Phoenicians came up with this concept during the Punic Wars. They had become masters of it. The Romans took what the Phoenicians started, and they really became masters of it. Cicero, the historian, called it the single most cruel and terrible punishment. Romans were not allowed to speak of it to their children, but what about Jesus' crucifixion is different than all of these other crucifixions? I think one is because of who he was. This is, we believe, the incarnate at Christmas, God in human form, incarnate son of God hanging on the cross. This is the Messiah on the cross. This is the king on the cross. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament, we'll learn that on Christmas Eve, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in this moment. And it's really significant as we mentioned last week, because of what it achieves for us. Christ died in order to bring us to God. He died in order to give us his righteousness. He died to triumph over sin and death and the devil. He triumphed to reconcile the world to himself. It was significant because of Jesus' will to endure it. We know from Scripture, Jesus could have called down legions of angels to set him free. He tells us previously in John chapter 10, you don't take my life from me, I lay it down willingly. Right? This is a willing sacrifice of Jesus. And I think this is also significant because Jesus' death points us forward 
to the day in which every believer from every people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue shall declare together on that last day, worthy is the lamb who was slain. One day we will all see what this event achieved as we gather together in heaven. So this section really divides itself into two separate uh, areas. We're to cover them both this morning, the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus, and trying to understand what they can bring as far as meaning for us this morning. I've got a couple different observations under each of them, but again, I promise I won't take too long, okay? Number one, the death of Jesus. Four quick observations. They're not on the screen or in your outline um, because I was behind, so you have to listen, okay? Uh, first observation, first area we're going to focus in on is the darkness that's displayed here. Let's start together in verse number 44. About the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened. This could not have been an ordinary eclipse because it lasted for three hours. Further, this Passover would have coincided with a full moon. Likely, this darkness was a sovereign act of God. You ever been outside on a summer day and all of a sudden the clouds start getting dark and you start getting nervous? I grew up down south and we had a little bit more often than we do up here where all of a sudden you see the clouds start shifting and changing. The sky starts changing colors and you start realizing we need to go inside now, right? This is about to change. This is a very unsettling feeling when it's the middle of the day and the sun starts uh, to kind of be covered up by clouds. It gets dark outside. You've got to imagine people who are at the store when Jesus is being crucified, people who are at the shop, people who are working their way around Jerusalem, and all of a sudden darkness covers the earth. All of a sudden, an intense darkness is all over the entire land. The poet says, God's son is dead. No marvel then that the sun doth hide its head. Now, this is a miracle, but also carries some symbolism for us. What does this darkness show? I think it shows first, uh, this darkness symbolizes evil. Jesus has spoken of this hour previously as this will be Satan's hour. This will be the power of darkness. This was by far the most evil of any crime that could take place to crucify the perfectly sinless, innocent man. I don't think it only symbolizes evil. I think it shows sorrow. It's almost as if creation itself is sorrowing the loss of its creator, almost as the sky begins to weep at the death of Jesus. Some would refer to this as the reversal of creation, a, a deliberate undoing of the normal order of things, as if creation was sympathizing with Jesus. But I think it also shows judgment. There's a really interesting text in the book of Amos. I don't know if most of us don't spend a whole lot of time in Amos, but Amos chapter 8, verse 9, we read about that day that's declared, saying the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in the middle of the day. And in that text, Amos is writing in the context of a judgmental passage against Israel, that this darkness signifies the judgment of God upon sinfulness. And I think this dark sky, the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, showed that he's suffering a very unique death. The suffering of Jesus is God's judgment against sinfulness. Jesus took the darkness because he took the judgment. Jesus took the darkness because he took my punishment. And by faith in him, we'll never have to face that kind of darkness in our lives or in the next. We don't have to face the judgment because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can endure the dark moments of our days today and the dark days that come to us in this world that is broken, the darkness. Think of, see, secondly, the, the curtain. Look at verse 45. It says, not only is the sun darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in the midst. So there's darkness, but here's another miracle. We see the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, this curtain was called the paraclete. It was not just like a curtain we have in our homes that are you know, thin we can buy from Target. This would have been about 12 inches thick. It was 
would have taken someone hacking at it with an axe, okay, to get through this uh, curtain. And not interesting point we see in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark tells us this curtain was torn at the moment of Jesus' last breath, not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. That literally you would have needed a 25-foot ladder to begin hacking at the top of this curtain for it to be able to be torn into the way that the Bible tells us that it was. This curtain in the temple separated the, the large area of the temple from what was called the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God dwelt. So that moment that Jesus takes his last breath, that curtain that separated humanity from God, God's people from their creator, is torn in two, signifying the moment that we now have access to the Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus. This was something that only God could have done, tear tear this curtain from top to bottom. What did the death of Jesus achieve? I think it achieves two things. It achieves something that was terminated and something that was inaugurated, okay? Something that was eliminated, something that began. What was terminated is what we call in the Bible the Old Covenant. That's the Levitical priesthood. This, this, this period of time has come to an end. The temple sacrifices are no longer necessary. Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews, tells us that he suffered once for all to put away the need for sacrifices. He terminates the Old Covenant, and he inaugurates the New Covenant. He terminates the old way of connecting to God through the sacrifice of bull and goats and inaugurates the new way of access to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death has made a way for all of us to enjoy the presence of God. This morning, we do not need to go to JFK and hop on a plane and fly to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God. It'd be a really busy place, okay? Sarah and I sometimes like to go to New York at Christmas. Uh, As I get older, I like it less. Um, used to be really exciting, and now I see pictures people are posting online, and it's just people everywhere, right? And now I'm like, you know what? Northwest Connecticut ain't too bad at Christmas. You know what? We'll enjoy all that our own Christmas trees have to offer, right? You see the jam-packed. That's what Jerusalem would be like, right? All of us have to travel to one place to get into the presence of God. Those are just people traveling in the presence of sentimental feelings, right? Uh, Of shopping and trees and, and energy, right? If, we, if there's a physical location that you had to fly to this morning to get into the presence of God, that'd be an awful big hassle, wouldn't it? But you and I, we don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience God's presence. We can sit here in Torrington, Connecticut, in an old banquet hall that some of you got married in, some of you got divorced in, some of you had babies in, like, like, or, like you got married in. Like this is, We can have the presence of God here. I don't think anybody had a baby in here. I was, a, I was like... You know what I mean. If you did, that'd be another thing for the postcard. So let me know if that happened. Maybe you're here for something and you had a baby in here. But we don't have to go somewhere to enjoy the presence of God. We enjoy the presence of God within us, right? That's why this moment of Christmas, we do want to praise the Father for his plan. We'll praise the Son for his sacrifice. We want to praise the Spirit that his presence is in us, right? That we rejoice in that. That's, again, why the writer of Hebrews tells us that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, that we pray not through someone else this morning. We are here, and as much as the Bible does talk about how Mary was a good person and a chosen one of God to bear the Son of God, we do not go to Jesus through his mother. We do not pray through Mary to get to Jesus. We can go boldly into the presence of Jesus because of his sacrifice for us, because that curtain was torn from top to bottom. I have the presence of God with me. Two remarkable signs for us. We have this, this darkness, this curtain that was torn signify the judgment of God and the inauguration of the new covenant, this new way of relating to him. Let's keep going, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. This is a 
really tender word. Each one of the Gospels has like different descriptions of the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Those don't contradict each other. They complement each other, right? We get the whole picture of what Jesus said on the cross. This is a really tender one where Jesus is entrusting himself to his father's care. I don't know if you ever had a memory where maybe as a kid you were on a road trip with your family and you fell asleep in the car just with the full knowledge and confidence that I can go to sleep and dad will get us there. When I get there, if I'm still asleep, dad will probably carry me in, right? You're just completely entrusting yourself to the care of your father. You're completely entrusting yourself. You know what? Dad's going to take care of it. I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about what's going to happen. I'm not worried about if we're going to get there safely. You're just going to go to sleep and you know that your father's going to take care of you. We have these moments in which you know that we'll be taken care of. Your, your father's going to see to it that you're taken care of, that you're going to be all right. And Jesus, in this moment, entrusts himself. Father, into your hands, I'm entrusting my spirit. And he's, all, by the way, also citing a passage from the book of Psalms, Psalm 31, verse 5, which David cites, where this is a pointer to Jesus. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. This is a, Jew, uh, a psalm, actually, the Jews would read at night. Kind of, many of us will get together with our families and we'll pray before we go to bed, right? They would, they would quote Psalm 31.5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I, I'm going to sleep now. I'm, I'm trusting in you, right? What's the old uh, prayer people used to pray? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I die before I wake. Pray the Lord my soul to take. I remembered it, right? Um, right? It's kind of Psalm 31.5. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. I'm trusting in you, Father. The one difference between the Psalm 31.5 passage and this citing that Jesus gives is that word father. Father doesn't appear in Psalm 31, but Jesus adds it. He's expressing full confidence in his father. Jesus knows there's light on the other side of this cross, and so he entrusts himself. You and I are going to have moments in our lives where we wonder if we've been forsaken. Or a Christian brother, a Christian sister will wonder if God has forgotten about us. We'll wonder if our Father will still take care of us. And Jesus shows us here how to trust the Father in the dark. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Even when we can't see the light, even when we can't understand what his plan or purposes are, he is our Father, and we can trust him. Uh, Matthew and Mark add the lament from Psalm 22, Father, why have you forsaken me? Peter, Luke doesn't add that. John adds the triumphant claim. It's finished, John gives us. But Luke, he records Jesus his last breath breathed in trust and faith and confidence and victory that he has won. He has completed his purpose by entrusting himself to the Father. Every step of the way to the cross and then its final breath on the cross, Jesus dies with complete assurance in his heavenly Father. And my friends, if you are in Christ, we can die with that same assurance. Said the former reformer, John Huss, died with these words on his lips, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Biographers tell us that Martin Luther, the great reformer, cited a number of passages when he died. John three sixteen, Psalm 68, verse 20, and then as he took his last breaths, Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit, into your hands I commit my spirit. We can die with assurance. If Jesus, we have a relationship with Jesus, if God is our Father, we can die with that same kind of confidence and assurance that Jesus had. Now I want to notice the responses, okay? Look at uh, the guys that are watching Jesus be crucified. We see there's a centurion who sees and praises God. We see that in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God. What a strange thing to do in that moment, right? You're watching someone be put to death, and your response is to give God glory for what you've experienced, for what you've seen. He glorifies God, saying, certainly 
truly, with confidence, this was a righteous man. In other words, the man that we just put to death was an innocent man. Another moment here in Luke's gospel where the innocence of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is declared to us. And we don't really know. Luke doesn't give us what the centurion saw that led him to this confession. Was it his prayer? We studied last week, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was it the compassion of Jesus? Was it the way in which he suffered? Was it the, the signs of creation, the darkness? And maybe the, he's heard about the curtain being torn. Was it the final words of Jesus? We don't know. Probably a little bit of a combination of all of them. But he came to the right conclusion. This was a righteous man we see in the book of Mark. Truly, this is the Son of God. In order for Jesus to be the Son of God, what does he have to be? He has to be righteous. He has to be innocent. And the centurion of this moment, think about this, a Roman centurion whose job it was to put criminals to death, the executor of the, the, the Roman Empire, exemplifies for us 2,000 years later what a pattern of faith looks like. And it's also a signal for those of us who aren't Jews in the room that there will be waves upon waves upon waves upon waves of Gentiles who see the truth of who Jesus is and respond, truly, this is the Son of God. God will open up our eyes in order to see him. So again, I want to ask us, what do we see? What do we see when we look at the cross? Some look to Jesus at the cross and they see game over, right? We won, we put him to death. But the centurion looks at Jesus at the cross and says, game changer. And that's what we say today as believers. This, this, I love that song the kids sing, first of all, this changes everything, right? Everything is different now. Centurion responds to the face. Verse 48, we see also some in the crowd who saw the spectacle of what took place, and they go home kind of beating their chests. This is a, a first century sign of like remorse or regret or of confession. We saw it, if you remember our, our, the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the publican who were praying. The Pharisee prays, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this guy, right? And the publican, what do we see him do? We see him beating his chest in repentance. We see him beating his chest in, in sorrow, acknowledging his sinfulness. So the one leaves the centurion with renewed faith and confidence in Jesus. Others leave aware, repenting of what they've done. They were transformed. The beating of their chest turns into the beating of their spiritual hearts, aware of what they had just seen, aware of what they had just experienced. We meet the women again in verse number 49. These ladies who had been followers of Jesus throughout his ministry. We've seen them as he, they've witnessed the mockery and the trial and, the, and the, the death of Jesus. We've seen them the casting of lots. These women have experienced everything. And in just a few short days, these same women will be one of the first ones to see the beginning of everything. Jesus came, he tells us, to seek and to save the lost. And he did that by dying in our place for our sins. When we have this time of year, I hope you enjoy the Christmas season. We lean hard into it in our house. Like we have Christmas everywhere. It looks like the North Pole puked in our house. Okay, we love it. We love Christmas. Uh, we switched a few years ago from the real classy white lights. How many of you guys are white light people? You guys are like timeless, cool. How many of you guys are fun and you like the colored lights? All right, cool. Yeah, so we switched to the colored lights recently, and it's just warm and cozy. I didn't mean to hate on you white light people, but a little bland, a little bland, folks. Add some pizzazz to it, you know, but. And I hope, you, I hope you lean hard into it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have traditions upon traditions upon traditions. But ultimately, when we look at the baby in the manger, and we remember we want to keep Christ central in this time of year, obviously. But there's also a direct line between that baby that was born and the purpose for which that baby was born. 
And initially, when the series was planning out, I'm like, should I, should I wait on the crucifixion? Should I wait on the resurrection? Should I wait on that until the new year? It's kind of a weird thing to lean into at Christmas. But I just felt like the more I thought about it, the more the, the connection needs to be made for us. That this baby that was born, the, 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 the sentimentality of the incarnation, the purpose for which that incarnation took place was the inauguration of the new covenant. And that new covenant was inaugurated through the death of Jesus. That that baby that was born was born to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's what I see when I look at the cross. And I hope this morning that's what you do as well, the death of Jesus. Secondly, the burial, the burial of Jesus. Verse 15 and verse 56 details how the body of Jesus was dealt with. And we see in this burial story that faith in Jesus and followers of Jesus come from some very unlikely areas. We just saw Roman centurion who gives his life to Christ. We just saw the thief on the cross who gave his life to Jesus. We see these women following Jesus. They're going to herald the resurrection. And now we see this guy. His name's Joseph of Arimathea. If Jesus has been relating all these, it seems like a bunch of outsiders, doesn't it? You've got the, the castaways. You've got the forgotten. You've got the Romans. You've got all these people that aren't accepted in the religious elite. Joseph of Arimathea was in the in crowd. Joseph was a part of the Jewish council. He's a a Jew, religious Jew, a teacher, a leader. So there was even within the Jewish community this remnant of believers that had not consented to what the crowd had been chanting for, we see. But they were looking forward to the kingdom of God. I think in many ways, this Joseph serves as a model disciple of what you and I should be doing. I love that verbiage when it says in verse number 51 that he had not consented to the council indeed of them. He was of Arimathea a city of the Jews, who also himself, look at this, waited for the kingdom of God. What do we do as disciples of Jesus? We wait for the kingdom of God. We wait for the kingdom. He's not waiting for a political leader. He's not really torn up about who's going to win in the next election. He's waiting for the kingdom. He's waiting for the Messiah. And he believed he found that Messiah in Jesus. Now, Mark gives us a little bit more detail in this Joseph story that he goes to Pilate and he had to go boldly to Pilate. You don't just walk into the Roman ruler's office and demand something. He had to go with some courage and say, hey, you remember that big, big crowd this morning that was chanting for the guy that got crucified? I'd like his body, right? It takes some courage to go there. You don't just go up to a Roman ruler and, and, and say something controversial like that, but he goes with boldness, and he says, I want to give this Jesus a burial, a good burial. We see in verse 52 and verse 53 that he's put into a tomb, this tomb is cut into a stone as basically symbolizing somebody's wealth that you'd have a grave like this. It's a new tomb that no one's ever been laid in, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 9, that he's put into the grave of a wealthy person. Jesus fulfills that. And there's this tomb. There's this tomb that's cut in stone. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, there's a debate over which between two tombs that Jesus was laid in. It doesn't really matter because he's not in any of them, okay? Um, but why is it important? Why would we spend a few minutes talking about the burial of Jesus? It's important for us to remember. I think it's an important article of our faith. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. The burial confirms the death of Jesus. You study Muslim theology. They're gonna tell you that Jesus swooned. Jesus passed out. Some other religions will hold today that Jesus didn't quite resurrect. He was more resuscitated. That he went through a lot on the cross and he passed out and that he came back. He snapped back to reality once he was off the cross. Now, this burial is confirming that Jesus died. 
By the way, we shouldn't doubt that in the first place as if Romans don't know how to kill people, okay? Um, study your history. They're quite good at it, okay? John 19, the death of Jesus is confirmed by the Roman soldiers. So what does this mean? What does this burial of Jesus really mean to us? Why is it important 2,000 years later that Jesus was buried? First of all, it's important because it proves the incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The death of Jesus proves that Jesus was really human, truly human. One of the evidences of full humanity is death. Happy news at Christmas, right? The reality of our humanity is that one day this day is coming for all of us, where we will take our last breath on this earth. Jesus was, yes, fully God, but also fully man, proof of the incarnation. Secondly, his death was the ultimate payment for our atonement. We needed more than the incarnation to forgive us. We needed more than Christmas to forgive our sins. We needed more than Jesus being born to be saved. We need more than, than the suffering of Jesus to be saved. We need his atonement. We needed the death of Jesus in order for the forgiveness to be applied to us. We needed his blood. That's what scripture tells us. That's the old song we sing. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We've been reconciled to God, not through the suffering of his son or through the birth of his son, but through the death of his son. And Hebrews says it is through death that our Savior has delivered us from death. Jesus has put death to death. Thirdly, his death was a prerequisite. Harken back to your college days, right? What's Jesus' death a prerequisite for? Resurrection. Resurrection. Obviously, for someone to rise from the dead, that means they have to die, right? Jesus had to really die for others of us who will really die to really be raised in the ultimate resurrection. There's no Luke 24 without Luke 23. There's no celebrate the resurrection Easter Sunday morning without the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And we as believers don't have to worry. We don't have to carry anxiety or fear or trepidation about what happens to us when we die. Jesus has gone to the grave ahead of us and he will lead us into eternal life. Unfortunate and fortunate reality of the position and the responsibility that I have as a pastor of our church is I've been there when folks have, have taken their last breath. I've been there with folks have taken the last breath in those times when they were believers in Jesus, and I've been there when they haven't been. And I just want to tell you, it's a very different experience to see someone pass away with full confidence and knowledge of where they are going without fear or trepidation, rejoicing in the fact that they're going to see Jesus. We've walked into hospital rooms with folks who are getting close, and you know what it is? You ready to see Jesus? There's a strange sense of, yeah, there's sorrow, but there's joy. There's acknowledgement that this, this race has been run, and now we're waiting for the day that we're going to see him face to face. That's a, that's a good Friday, because it results in that celebration on that Sunday morning. There's a day of preparation. Final few verses there detail the, the burial of Jesus, the women that were following and ministering to Jesus take his body, and they're going back on the following days to be able to uh, put spices on it, keep it from a decaying, come in a balming process in the first century. Because they're faithful Jews, they rest on the Sabbath day, and they're going to go back on that Sunday. That's where we leave it this morning. But the good news is, that's not where the Bible leaves it. Jesus is laid to rest, but the story isn't over. Things don't remain silent in that tomb for very long. Peter would later preach, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for our Savior to be held by death. 
So as we come to this text, we're reminded that next Sunday is coming. A Sunday is coming. And Sunday came, and death has been defeated, and now you and I don't have to fear death as believers. We can say in our final moments, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We can have that same confidence in the burdens, the difficulties that we face. And by the way, sometimes we say, you know what, when I'm going to go to heaven on that last day, I think I'll have that confidence then. Can I tell you, if you're going to have that confidence then, you can have that confidence now. We're going to go into situations this week. Some of you guys, Christmas is the best. Some of you guys are going to have some difficult days coming up for the next few weeks. Holidays are really emotional multipliers, right? Happy things become happier. Sad things become sadder around the holidays. But even as we go into these difficult days, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. I, I have trust and confidence and reliance in my Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus. I want to finish with, I won't sing the song because that would be ruin a good day, but uh, one of the songs we sing in our church. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives. Christ he lives. What reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Praise be to God for the cross and the message of Christmas that connects us to the purpose for which Jesus came. I invite you to bow with me and we'll pray together. We'll be dismissed in just a moment. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the joy 